Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois, Indiana, Sea Grant, which I remember to say with increasing regularity. <laughs> and I'm so happy to be joined today by Megan Gunn. Megan, it's been a hot minute, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And it's also been a hot summer which I've been enjoying. Yes. I'm reminded of when I was a kid, one of my favorite Jimi Hendrix songs was long, hot summer nights. Uh, and, and we've had a few of those. Yeah. It's been nice to be warm, uh, but that's enough about classic rock. We don't need to spend any time on that during this episode. So uh, <laughs> let's see before we get to today's interviews. I got a, a couple of things going on. Uh, first of all, Hey, don't forget about the Lakeys, everybody, right? We've got to nominate things for the Lakeys. So for those of you who have missed the last couple episodes, the Lakeys are going to be our end of year award ceremony, or as we're calling it, possibly not the least prestigious Great Lakes related <laughs> award ceremony that there is. And um, so what we want you to do is we have a, a whole bunch of categories. We have like a science communication piece of the year, outreach program of the year, um, scientific research of the year, of course, sandwich, great sandwich of the year, uh, donut of the year, you know, and all these are great lakes related. And so we want you to go to, uh, the link, which you can find in the show notes, or just go to bitly.com slash lakeys 21, L A L A K I E S two one, um, and nominate things for the lakeys. And, uh, because I think it's important it's just a fun celebration of all the great work. Uh, that people do throughout the uh, throughout the Great Lakes, and I actually have a a featured Lakey nominee right now. Um, so what we're going to do over the next few episodes is you know feature some of the nominees to so people can go check out this good work. And so this is knowyourinsects.org. Have you uh, have you have you heard of knowyourinsects.org? No, but it sounds like that's something I should know. Yeah, I'll be honest, I had not heard of it either. But this is a, a listener, an anonymous listener. Uh, nominated this. And so I, I went there. It's a volunteer run website and they have photos of insects from users trying to help you identify and learn cool things about insects, essentially. Um, focus on Michigan, but I think it applies for a lot of the, the Great Lakes. And so once you go there is uh, you can go there and, and like you click on start identification and it'll take you through, you know, essentially a key, right? You've got used identification mm -hmm. keys before. Um, but what's cool about this is it's got pictures. It's got like descriptive text. You know, usually when you see a key, it's written very, in a very jargony kind of way. And if you're not an expert in there and whatever the, the taxonomy is, then it's hard to use, but this has a lot of descriptive text. It's like, well, if the wings are wet, you might have to carefully, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Right. Yeah. And they have pictures. And of course it's like hypertext, uh, is the exact way that these keys should be done as opposed, you know, where you're clicking on things and you can click on identifications and, and stuff like that. So, uh, the site is a little, um, uh, uh, it's an earlier web design, but I think that works, you know, um, it, I think that works really well for this. So I, I, I like it a lot. So go to knowyourinsects.org and start, um, start, uh, identifying some insects. That'd be cool. Yeah. I think it's especially cool resources, maybe for students or even just interested lay people. Uh, so it is cool, but will it be a lakey winner? We'll find out later in this year. <laughs> And uh, the other quick announcement is don't forget about um, Death and Life of the Great Lakes book by Dan Egan that we're reading as part of our Teach Me About the Great Lakes book club. Uh, and that's um, exciting. That'll be coming up um, as soon as the graduate students have read the book. And then we will have that. I have now finished it. Uh, I think it's very good. I've started it and it is very good. Yes, yes. I have some uh, I have some thoughts on certain parts of it or whatever, but it's really good and a fascinating history about things. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so, uh, very, we're worth reading. It's very readable. Uh, you know, it's uh, narratively very, it's got a lot of momentum to it. 
Um, yeah, enjoy it. So read it, even if you don't want to participate in the book club. But if you do, we are going to be looking for reader feedback. Uh, so I recommend doing it. Oh, wait, Megan, since you're here, one other thing. So we did a Brew 10 update last week and, uh, uh, or last episode, um, with Carolyn Brew 10 total disappointment for me. Have you seen any cicadas this year? I saw all the cicadas. So I spent my summer out in Martell Forest, which is one of Purdue's properties with a summer research program that I coordinate. And that was basically the only place in all of the greater left, the greater Lafayette area that the cicadas were. And so it was so loud every day that they were there until they started to die off. And just, it was just one day they were just there. And uh, one of the research, one of the research groups focused on the cicada emergence and mammal interactions. And they did see, they were doing camera traps. Um, They saw a lot more mammal activity once the cicadas were there and then saw it die off a little bit once the cicadas die off. Oh, because the mammals were, were they eating the cicadas or? or... Oh yeah. Well, that's what the thought is. No kidding. Well, I'm so disappointed. Mm-hmm. I should have come out to Martell Forest because, like, I got you my, should have. Yeah, I got all fired up. My kids got all fired up, and then we got nothing. We have the annual ones right now. Uh, they're mm-hmm. kind of winding down a little bit, I think. But so, did you see? If I remember from that episode, which everybody should check out with Jessica Ware, um, I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, you had not seen them like crawling around like just after emergence. Have you seen one of those yet? Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were all there. Okay, because I I found one and I took a video for you. Because uh, you hadn't seen it, and, you, and I wanted to fully explain how creepy they were, but I think now you know. <laughs> it's, it's rather disgusting. Yep, it is rather disgusting. And you you would walk around, and they would like fly in your face because they're very clumsy critters. Yeah. Yeah, you should have come out there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was full of sadness, but the more I hear you talk about it, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's cool. Don't worry <laughs> about it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's neither here nor there. Uh, today, actually, we're going to talk with, it's completely non-cicada related, although is anything completely non-cicada related? <laughs> this is pretty close. Uh, but uh, we're going to talk about nutrients in the in the Great Lakes. Uh, we're going to talk with a, a freshwater ecologist or limnologist um, uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, as you know, he's a researcher, which means it's time for everybody's favorite, the researcher feature theme. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Mooney. He is with the Center for Limnology at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Rob, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm also awesome. I'm super glad to be here. Megan, how are you? I forgot to ask you. I'm good. How are you doing? Everybody's good. Everybody's glad to be here. Everybody's glad to talk about some nutrients, some tributaries. Uh, yes. We may pay tribute to nutrients. We'll find out. Um, but let's start. So, so Rob, you are, uh, oh, I don't even know. Are you a limnologist, a stream ecologist, a nutritionist? What is like the right even way to? <laughs> I think I, I, I typically, when I introduce myself to people, just sort of call myself a freshwater ecologist, you know, because limnology covers the science of inland waters, which is lakes and streams and I work mostly on streams, but think a lot about lakes and just the sort of general ecology of those systems. Okay, great. Well, so how did you get into that? Like, how did you start with lakes and streams? What what uh, led you to start studying that? It might sound kind of typical, but I really liked fishing uh, growing up. And in undergrad, I got really into fly fishing for trout and tying flies and thinking a lot about when different bugs are going to be emerging, why fish are eating when they're eating and that sort of stuff. And 
then that interest led me to taking a limnology class at University of Wisconsin La Crosse. And since then, it's been a lot of summers doing work out on lakes and rivers and taking aquatics classes. And so that's sort of how it all started. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it is. University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. That's where the uh, New Orleans Saints had their training camps when I was a kid in oh. the 80s. Actually, my, uh, my, my master's advisor was from the um, U.S. Virgin Islands, and he played football. And uh, he played football at the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. And the, re- the way they picked there, or I don't even know if he pl- I think he played football, was uh, he and his friends looked for universities that were near New York on a map. And so they pointed to the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse because it looked like it was close to New York. And so then he flew there <laughs> <laughs> in like September or something. And, and uh, he's an enormous man. I mean, he played line like a football sized dude. Everybody thought he played for the Saints. But, you know, the first thing to do was buy like those, you know, uh, uh, Christmas stories type winter jackets in like September walking around. <laughs> so it's a lot colder there than it was in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Okay. Uh, anyway, focus, Stuart. You can do this. Maybe you should have had another coffee. So, but a lot of what you study is, is nutrient loading, right? Is that just an outcropping? Uh, so why do you study insects? How did you get into nutrient loading specifically, I guess? That's actually a great question and sort of an interesting transition because uh, my first undergraduate re- research project was looking at how invertebrates, uh, stream insects, influenced nutrient cycling in some of these streams. And so that's sort of how I got into that. And then I started realizing that nutrients play this really, really critical role in all things aquatic ecosystems. And so then my interest sort of shifted from specifically bugs and insects to uh, more nutrient dynamics and ecosystem uh, studies. And it sort of just shifted a little bit over time. So let's go real basic then, just to make sure we're all on the same page, because I am dumb about this stuff. When we say nutrients, what do we mean exactly? Yeah, so nutrients, you know, people think about nutrients in different ways, depending on the context that you're thinking about them in. But from an aquatic standpoint, really thinking about these sort of key components or elements of biological molecules. Uh, So carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, silica, sulfur, and many others. And so all of those different nutrients are critical components of uh, nucleic acids like DNA. Uh, they're in proteins, carbohydrates, fats. And so they sort of make up all those key biological molecules that you learn a lot about in introductory biology and high school biology and those sorts of classes. And so they're really important for basically all life. Um, and so, so, so when you're looking at nutrient loadings then in, in streams or whatever, so you're looking at the relative amounts of these different types, is that kind of, is that kind of what you investigate on a big picture? Yeah, exactly. And so when you think about nutrient loading, you're basically thinking about the amount of nutrients that are entering a lake or a receiving water body from a stream. And we call those streams that are flowing into something a tributary of that receiving water body. And so in the Great Lakes, uh, I've been thinking a lot about Lake Michigan and nutrient loads or nutrient inputs to the coastal zone of uh, Lake Michigan and the Great Lakes. I have a silly question. How many tributaries are flowing into Lake Michigan? That is a great question. Uh, so I've always said about 300-ish because at different times of the year, different streams aren't flowing. Some flow almost all year round, you know, in really dry seasons like we're having right now. A lot of the ones that would normally be flowing aren't necessarily flowing. Um, And there's a lot of really small tributaries that 
sort of hover on that border of being a tributary versus not being a tributary. So it's about 300-ish, give or okay. take. Hmm. That's cool. 300 ish minus the Chicago river now, I guess. Right. Yep. So 299 ish. <laughs> but uh, so, so what do you do? So you study these rivers. Does that involve like a lot of field work or, 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 or how do you do this work? Yeah, it, it does. And so what I've been doing uh, for a lot, for the last few years is thinking a lot about the drivers of nutrients in all of these tributaries. And so you know, how different patterns of land cover affect uh, nitrogen and phosphorus in the stream, how watershed size can control these different uh, variables that influence nutrients. So in other words, is it possible that different types of land cover influence stream chemistry different in uh, smaller watersheds versus larger watersheds? And in particular, I've had a lot of interest in very small, or not not necessarily very small, but smaller tributaries that typically get overshadowed by the large tributaries at the enormous size scale of the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like I said earlier, when there's about 300 tributaries, a lot of them are really small. Some of them are pretty big. And those are the ones that typically garner the most attention. Okay. So you're looking at small ones. Like what is, so you say pretty small, not extremely small, like, like, uh, uh, so there's stream order, right. Um, yeah. uh, and there's like feet across and maybe some, so what are, what are the measures that you use to sort of categorize these? Yeah. Stream order is a great one. Um, and so I think a lot about first and second order streams. And so those really small ones compared to some of the larger, uh, fifth and sixth order streams in the basin. Um, and those are the ones that I've been really interested in uh, and doing a lot of field work going to all these really small streams. And one of the main reasons that I got really invested into these small streams was on a sampling trip, I started talking with people that owned property that had these small streams going through or people that would go to a beach that was right by a small stream. And they thought it was the coolest thing that somebody that was interested in nutrient loads to Lake Michigan was looking at, you know, their stream because it's what they are familiar with. It's what they interact with on a daily basis. And if there's one stream or tributary that's going to impact their sort of daily lives or their livelihood, it would be that small one. Um, And so that's really why I initially got interested in thinking about these small streams and spent most of my dissertation uh, thinking about what drives nutrients in these small streams and how might these small streams affect nutrient loads, both at the lake-wide scale, but also at uh, I hate saying more important scale, but at the critically important local scale. Let's go to the nut of it here. So small streams, it would seem like they would have small effect, right? Um, relative to the big streams. But so what, what can you tell us about that? Is that the case or is it, uh, do they have more of an effect than you might think? Yeah, that's a great question. And it sort of depends how you look at it. So a lot of times in the Great Lakes, a lot of people are really interested in loads. And so when I say load, I mean, the quantity of nutrient that's delivered to the lake over time. And so the nutrient load is sort of the product of multiplying the discharge by the nutrient concentration. And so when you have a really large river, they can deliver a lot of a nutrient in a relatively short amount of time just because they're pumping out so much water into that coastal zone. And so um, when thinking about sort of the loads and how these small tributaries compared to the large tributaries from the loading standpoint, they really don't have much of an impact at the lake-wide scale at all. So 
from our study, we found that six, the six largest tributaries delivered the vast majority of the nutrient load at a given time. And so the six largest delivered about 70% of the total nitrogen and the total phosphorus that was entering Lake Michigan in a day, basically. But these smaller tributaries, they did have some, they had some characteristics that would make them seem like they could have a really large impact at the local scale. And so these smaller tributaries, one, there's a lot of them. And so they're pretty much flowing in every couple of miles, every one mile, every two miles along the coastline. And so they're really abundant. There's a lot of them. And even though their loads aren't that great, they can have concentrations uh, that would indicate that they could create hotspots of potential local eutrophication and algal blooms along the coastline. And another big distinction was thinking about what we call the bioavailability of the load that's entering. And so in thinking about phosphorus, not all phosphorus is immediately available for algae to take in and sort of expand the population. But there's a specific type of phosphorus, soluble reactive phosphorus, SRP. It's a type of, or it's the dissolved inorganic form. And so once that gets into the water, it's immediately available for primary producers like algae to incorporate. And these smaller tributaries tended to have higher concentrations or more or a higher bioavailable form of phosphorus than some of these larger tributaries. And so they might not have the largest impact at the lake-wide scale, but they're really important for these small local areas. And like I said earlier, which ties back into the importance of sort of understanding what's going on at every small stretch of coastline along the Great Lakes, because that's how people interact with the lake. So here in Indiana, most of our nutrient loads are, like they come from agricultural fields, but most of the coastline around Lake Michigan is urban. So where are those nutrients coming from? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And so a lot, so sort of the Lake Michigan Basin, it's sort of set up with a lot of agriculture and urban development in sort of the southern areas. Um, and then as you get up into the UP, that's where you have a lot of your natural forest and wetlands. And so uh, in a lot of these urban settings and agricultural settings, you do get a lot of uh, increased nutrients from fertilizer use. And so the Fox River, as an example, is highly agricultural. That's the river that flows into the southern tip of Green Bay. And so there's a lot of agriculture in that basin. There's a lot of fertilizer runoff. Um, and so a lot of times it's really any agricultural development within a watershed. But in the urban settings, there's also a lot of urban sources of nutrients. A great example is lawn fertilizer. You know, people like their yards to look green. They want their garden to look, you know, they want their garden to grow. Um, and so there's a lot of fertilizer use, not only in agricultural settings, but also um, in the more urban uh, populated areas. So you say in the smaller tributaries that the, the phosphorus in particular is more likely to be uh, soluble reactive phosphorus, or as I call it, I call it SRP. Um, but uh, uh, first of all, uh, which is more bioavailable, which I think means like, you know, the algae, like it's more likely to be taken up and turn into algal blooms and, and whatever. Um, uh, uh, why, why are the concentrations higher of SRP in the, the tributaries than in, in, you know, your big six or whatever? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, you know, that's something that we're still thinking a lot about and trying to really get at why sort of the general 
explanation is that large streams, large rivers are fundamentally different from small streams. You know, they're shallower, there's more interaction with the stream water and everything growing on the bottom. Um, another main difference between small streams and large rivers is sort of the what we call the flow path distance. And so you can imagine within a the Fox River, which is a massive river, the watershed is very expansive. If you have you know, a, a mole of phosphorus that enters up at the headwaters of the Fox River, that mole of phosphorus is going to change a lot before it eventually gets to the mouth of the Fox River and then enters uh, Lake Michigan. Whereas in these smaller streams, it doesn't take as much time for that mole of phosphorus to make it through the watershed and then travel downstream um, into the lake. So it, it changes like over time because it interacts with other water and other chemicals in the water, or is it is that? Yeah, so that'll a lot of they'll get taken in by algae, and so there's a lot of algae uptake within the rivers and streams as well. And so I think that's something else that's important to note is that these tributaries are not just these sort of pipelines that are going straight into the lake. There's also a lot of uh, separate ecology and nutrient uptake happening within these streams. And so there's just a lot of nutrient processing that happens within these rivers and these smaller streams that can change sort of the fate of that nutrient before it enters uh, the lake. We have, uh, it seems like mainly nitrogen and phosphorus are the ones that we've talked about today. Is that, is that because those are the ones that lead to algal blooms? Is that why we care about those? Or, or um, are there other ones that we care about? Or what gives with that, I guess? That's a great question. And so we think a lot about nitrogen and phosphorus because those are typically what we call the limiting nutrients uh, for algae and freshwater systems, primarily phosphorus. And so, um, you know, the, the basic saying is that plants and organisms will sort of grow until they hit something that limits their growth. And it's typically nitrogen or phosphorus because those two are usually uh, the nutrients that are uh, in the lowest quantity relative to their biological need. And so there are other nutrients that are at a lower quantity, but organisms don't need as much of that nutrient. And so those are typically the limiting uh, nutrients. And in particular, phosphorus uh, is definitely the, the nutrient of most concern uh, within the Great Lakes. Um, one, because they are the main limiting factor for algal growth. And they're in a lot of fertilizers that we put on the land to increase crop yield and make our yards greener. And so there's a lot of excess phosphorus that enters uh, tributaries through watersheds and then the lake from the tributaries. So I can see this being a big deal in, in some of the Great Lakes, but isn't Lake Michigan, like thanks to our friends, the mussels, uh, isn't Lake <laughs> Michigan actually really uh, clean right now and the water clear? So is is nitrogen and phosphorus, are they effective within the lake? Obviously within tributaries, maybe it's different, but in the lake, does it really matter right now or, or, or what? Yeah, that is a great question. And that brings up a really good point of the nearshore offshore distinction within Ooh. Lake Michigan and the other Great Lakes, uh, because even though the you could imagine because the lakes are so big that in the middle of the lake, you could have a very low nutrient concentration. You could have low nitrogen, you could have low phosphorus. But then if you look in the nearshore area, the nearshore area, there's a lot more, I guess I shouldn't say a lot more, there's different stuff happening in the nearshore. Like you said, the mussels are one aspect where you have nutrients entering the coastal zone, you have algae converting those nutrients into algal biomass and then you have the mussels eating all of that and then taking those nutrients down to the bottom and so i think one uh 
I'm, I think I have this right, but it's estimated now that uh, there's more phosphorus in all of the mussels than in the rest of Lake Michigan. Wow. And so just recently, um, an awesome paper came out that talked about how mussels are now sort of the driving factor of nutrient cycling in the Great Lakes. And so you have, it's sort of this wicked problem with all different things happening, right? You have changes in nutrient loads. You have the lakes getting warmer, which can lead to more algal blooms. You can have increased precipitation with climate change. And so then you have increased overland flow in these agricultural areas that can increase nutrient loads. And then you have the mussels doing <laughs> their thing down in the bottom. And nobody really knows how all of these different uh issues are going to combine in the future as you have shifts in nutrient loads, shifts in muscle density, and shifts in climate. Thinking about this, there's nitrogen, there's phosphorus, there's other nutrients, and, and it's potentially a, a problem in, in all of the lakes and, and um, uh, really beyond the Great Lakes. Uh, back in my hometown, we're sending it all down the Mississippi River, right? And so you see what's <laughs> going on in the Gulf of Mexico. So, so the, the common steps you'll hear, you know, watch your fertilizer use at home and things like that. Uh, are there other kind of steps that people can take or does it even matter if it all comes from like big, big ag, you know, how much does like individual stuff matter? Do you know, or is this kind of outside of your area of, of... So I think that's also why I've had such an interest in small tributaries because I mean, watershed management for nutrients is never easy, but in these smaller watersheds with a fewer number of landowners and less people within that watershed, that's where small adjustments could really make a difference. What I usually say is just being aware that everyone is living in a watershed and whatever you do in sort of your portion of that watershed has the potential to influence stream nutrients, groundwater nutrients, uh, tributary nutrients, and eventually sort of whatever that downstream water body is. And so that was one of the really cool aspects of doing a lot of field work and going to all of these almost 300 tributaries is interacting with people. And sort of, like I said earlier, sort of stopping at all these tributary mouths, talking with people, they'd ask me, you know, oh, well, what, what's, why are these nutrients there? And, you know, it's sort of the common answer as well, agriculture, uh, a lot of nitrogen in the groundwater from uh, sort of legacy agriculture and just sort of informing people that, yeah, you're in a watershed. What you do in that watershed can have uh, long-term consequences. So outside of talking to people as you're out and about, what does a typical day of field, like, field work look like for you? You did 300 streams. Yeah. So how do you do 300 streams? <laughs> yeah. so, a long day. Uh, in, <laughs> in general, so on these sampling trips, what I guess the main objective that I that I had was to try to figure out what's driving nutrient concentrations and differences in nutrient concentrations at these almost 300 sites spatially. And so I was trying to visit all these sites in the fewest days as possible because we didn't want to have any major differences in climate. We didn't want to you know, hit a really big storm that could shift things a little bit. And so what we would do is uh, we would would leave from we would leave from Madison, go over to Milwaukee, and then over the course of six days, drive around Lake Michigan and get back to Milwaukee and then get back to Madison. And so wow. a typical day, we would usually drive about seven hours, 
and stop at between 30 and 40 tributaries. Um, My goodness. And so, so, you know, we, we would sort of wake up in the morning and put the GPS up on the car, find the daily route and hit go. And it would say, all right, you will reach your final waypoint at, you know, in seven hours. And that was always a little daunting when we'd wake up, look at the drive time, and then remember, oh, well, we still have 40 sites that we had to stop at. Um, right. So that's just seven hours of drive time. Plus, you got to actually sample the rivers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so each site would take, it only takes about five minutes at a site uh, because we would, it was a very brute force method. You know, we would stop at a road crossing, throw a bucket over a bridge, collect the water, filter the water immediately, and then put it in a cooler. And so the re- one of the main reasons we were able to do all this very quickly was really the planning aspect. You know, we, we have a lot of different GIS resources available to us that have exact points of road crossings because a lot of people care about road crossings because they can prevent uh, migratory fish passage in the Great Lakes. And so by sort of merging tributary flow line layers. So basically where these tributaries are with road crossing GIS layers, we can get GPS coordinates for all these different road crossings. And then I could make daily routes in sort of a Garmin driving GPS software. That's really cool. That is really cool. That's intense. Was it, do you have an army of undergraduates or is it you and a grad student or is it just you and your lonesome thoughts? <laughs> it, so it, so it, it was it was always me and another either undergraduate student or uh, sort of research assistant. And so it would be two people um, and we would get to know each other pretty well at the end of <laughs> at the end of six days. Is it like a like a Spotify playlist situation or? So that's actually a, an interesting question. I the first trip, we actually never even listened to the radio because you, we were stopping every four minutes or something. And mm. you're always sort of looking for the bridge, looking for the stream, trying to jot down if the stream is dry or any notes about the site. But eventually we started uh, scanning sort of classic rock stations. And aside from all the cool tributary notes and tributary research, uh, I also have a pretty impressive data set on different bands and different songs <laughs> that we would hear at different tributaries and different regions of the lake. So here we go. All right, good. The reason I ask, and this wasn't on a thing, so if it totally fails, it's my fault. All right, we're gonna go. We're gonna do your top three songs that you would hear while um, while uh, uh, sampling the tributaries. Now, here's how we're gonna do it. I'm never explicit enough about this, and it's always a disaster, and that's fine. <laughs> I'm gonna do a drum roll. You're going to announce the song, and then I'm going to play another sound effect, a cymbal, and then we will comment on the song, and then we're going to do it again two more times, okay? All right, so let's do that. So uh, we're going to start. We're going to count down. Uh, So the number three song that uh, you hear while sampling uh, 300 tributaries uh, in in Wisconsin is... Scorpions, Rocky Like a Hurricane. That song is a classic. Megan, do you know Rocky like a hurricane? I don't know that song. So the Scorpions, they're a, um, were they a German band? What's the deal with Scorpions? I, I think, know. I think so. Yeah. I, I think they're a German band. They're a, you know, they're, they're pretty typical on these classic rock stations, especially once you get up, up through the UP area. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I'm very well aware of that song. Yeah. All right. Great. Uh, so that was the number three. So now the number two song uh, that you hear when sampling 300 tributaries in Wisconsin is... George Thorogood, Bad to the Bone. <laughs> that is a classic. That's one of the first ones I learned to play on guitar, except I couldn't play it right. I remember sitting there and I was like bragging to my dad. I was like, let me show him how to do it. And then I like totally bleeped up the song. <laughs> it was like really bad at it. And I was like, oh, I guess I got to go back to the woodshed. All right, Bad to the Bone. Oh my goodness. So we did this. I totally forgot. We had a talent show in eighth grade. And uh, that was uh, like when Guns N' Roses was really popular. And so I went to a, an Episcopal school. Um, you know, religious school it wasn't a Catholic school, but a religious school. Oh my goodness! And we decided to call our band Nuns and Moses. And so we came out like I was dressed like a nun. Not even kidding. Um, don't strike me lightning. And uh, we and and like the drummer was dressed up like Moses, and and we played Bad to the Bone. I completely forgot about that. So, so that's good. Classic Nuns and Moses, Bad to the Bone, and the number one song you hear while sampling three hundred tributaries is. Black Sabbath, Paranoid. <laughs> and that is a good thing to be when you're a graduate student or a postdoc <laughs> collecting data. So yeah, that, that was actually a pretty easy activity for me because I have very specific notes on what tributaries we were sampling when those three songs would come on. And so someday I'm going to generate a map that has... <laughs> all of that data somehow this is on the key it, data but... yeah get tenure first but uh yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh well thanks for uh um uh amusing me there rob and listeners you too but uh you know, this is actually really interesting stuff, um, but that's not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week, uh, and this is my shtick every week, but more true than normal this week. The real reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is because our friend Madeline McGee said that you have strong opinions about uh, this next question, so I want to talk about this. Um, and the question is this, if you could have a great sandwich for breakfast or a great donut, nope. Let me do that again. Quinn, don't bother to edit it. Everybody should know just how stupid I am. All right. Uh, <laughs> same question, man. This is like episode 38. You'd think you get it. Uh, the question is this. If you could have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, what would you choose? I would absolutely choose a great sandwich for any any meal, any time, uh, any day. So great sandwich easily. But when going around Lake Michigan, uh, I became very familiar with pasties and pasty shops. And so pasties uh, on my sampling trips, if I could have any food for any meal, it would definitely be a pasty. Now, now I'd never heard of a pasty until like a year and a half ago. So maybe I'm alone and everybody else in the Great Lakes, they know about pasties. But if they don't, fill me in. What is a pasty? Yeah, a pasty, it's essentially a savory hand pie. And so it's a <laughs> so it's it's a, a dough that's you know filled with uh, potato, rutabaga, carrot, and usually beef. And so they became really popular up in the UP because uh, they were easy to take down in the mines because there was a lot of mining going on up there. And so they would take pasties down. And so as soon as you sort of get up by Escanaba, that's when the good pasty shops really start to pop up. And so I've stopped at quite a few uh, when going around Lake Michigan and then recently going around Lake Superior, we've got a couple pasties. 
And so, yeah, they're kind of my ideal food, I think. So <laughs> Sounds like we need a road trip. Yep, definitely need a road trip. So normally I ask you, where can I get the best, you know, whatever in your location? But I'm going to ask you a different question. You have sampled 300 tributaries driven up and down all around Lake Michigan. Where is the best pasty in uh, Lake Michigan? Ooh, that is a, a great question. I think I would say, I believe it's pronounced Lato's pasties. It's up in the UP, just east of uh the Mackinac Bridge that connects the UP with the Lower Peninsula. And I can tell you that it's right next to the Moran River, <laughs> which is a tributary that flows <laughs> into the coastal zone up there. And so all of my sort of directionality is where these places are relative to adjacent tributaries. That makes sense. <laughs> right next to the Moorhand River. That's perfect. Um, we will try to find this place and put a link to it in our show notes at <laughs> teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 38. That's the number, 38, because this is somehow episode 38. Uh, or you can just look down at your phone or podcast, whatever, and, and the show notes should be there. Okay, great. So the, before we move on, though, what makes a what, what makes for a good pasty compared to another? Is it like got to have a high fat content so you can really, you know, get the... Or is it... I don't know. What's the deal, man? I think it has to have the right ratio of meat to everything else. And so that's really what would do it for me. And it had to have a nice, you know, golden brown uh, pastry on the outside. But I also think it had to do with how hungry we were by the time we would get to those locations. And so I might have some biases that I'm not accounting for <laughs> giving my opinions on uh, pasty shops. <laughs> When you get done with the classic rocket stream paper, you can then model your pasties. Uh, yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. So how about this though? So, so one of the things, um, once I get uh, released from Sea Grant for having maybe the world's stupidest podcast is uh, I'm going to go into business selling goby dogs, right? So we're going to, you know, gobies are hot dog shaped uh, fish. So I'm going to pop those on a bun and, uh, and sell them off a cart in the streets in Chicago. Uh, um, and so anyway, so, so go be pasties. Is that going to happen or not? What are you thinking there? I mean, I, you could probably convince me to, to try one. I think if you find a bunch of grad, grad students that are doing field work and you say, Hey, here's any food. I think you could probably get them to, <laughs> get them to have it. So. The, the harder the field work, the better the pasty. Kind of yep. <laughs> So you're, uh, as you call it, oh, I wrote down precisely what you call yourself. You call yourself a freshwater ecologist, right? Yes. What makes you good at that job? Like, what makes a good freshwater ecologist, do you think? That's a, a great question. That's always tough to answer. I think because even though I consider myself a freshwater ecologist, I've also been a, a grad student for 10 years. Um, I'm a postdoc right now. And so really for me, it's it's been trying to trying to figure out what helps me to stay motivated to do all this. Um, and, and that's just, I think it sounds like I said, it might be kind of cliche, but uh, liking being outside and liking to do field work. So enjoying field work um, has been a really big aspect to what I've done and what I am continuing to do. Uh, from both being out in the field and the planning. And what's really helped is knowing that things are going to go wrong, but just sort of going with it, right? So sort of learning to go with the flow as things 
don't go how I originally planned or had hoped that they would go. But also a bigger component is sort of surrounding myself with uh, people that I looked up to and wanted to collaborate with and sort of recognizing sort of my strengths and then working with people that have similar and complementary strengths. Um, you know, from a modeling standpoint, there's a lot of people that do really great modeling work. I'm not necessarily one of them, <laughs> but working with people that are really strong modelers uh, and just finding a group of collaborators that have complementary skill sets. That's great. Well, Rob, where can people go to find out more about the uh, work that you do? I, I have a, I have a Twitter. I have a Twitter uh, that I update sometimes. Um, <laughs> and the Center for Limnology website at UW is uh, a great website to check out. You can see uh, some of the Great Lakes stuff that I am working on. I also have a project in the Mississippi River. Um, and I am also really interested in teaching and curriculum development. And there's more of that on sort of the CFL webpage, my Twitter, and then I have a website, uh, a, a Weebly website as well that has a lot of that. Well, we'll uh, put links to all of those in the show notes so people can go check it out. I encourage you to do it. Uh, so Dr. Robert Mooney, Center for Limnology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, thank you for coming on and teaching us so much about the Great Lakes. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. <laughs> It's always great to talk to people who are, you know, really out in the field doing work. And I can't imagine sampling 300 streams in, in like a few days. Jeez. But at least it's just like a quick stop. You get what you need and then keep going. Yeah, that's true. It sounds like no waiters were involved, which is always no. a good thing. Yeah. Well, it's sort of a good thing. When you're doing 300 streams, it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> that would make for a long, hot week. Yes. Yes, it would. Uh, so, Megan, what's something that you learned today from our interview with uh, Rob Mooney? Well, it was about how many trips run into Lake Michigan. 300? That's incredible. But I guess it also makes sense because it hits like three different states. Yeah, it does. But it's still a lot. You don't really think about I mean, of course, there's so much fresh water in this area. Mm -hmm. but it, it, just hearing it quantified like that is, is really interesting. And mine's actually kind of related. I didn't realize that, you know, when you're looking at the nutrient loading in, in Lake Michigan, that the biggest, I think he said six rivers contribute 70% of the nutrients. So... To me, you know, obviously at Sea Grant, we don't set policy, um, nor should we. But but if you're thinking about policy, boy, when it comes to nutrients, that's got to be the place you start for the big scale stuff. Mm -hmm. Although then, uh, you know, as Rob was saying, the, but the it's really a think globally, act locally kind of thing. Because your local stream, uh, you can really make a difference in. So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. All right. Um, good. Well, let's uh, do the credits and wrap it up. Would you like to read the credits or would you like me to? Sure, I can read the credits. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Thanks for listening and keep great in those lakes.